How's it going, Sharice? It's good. Nothing remarkable. Nothing really remarkable to say. That is such a busy week. It was a busy a week. I have, I have nothing. I don't even know how to process my week. Nothing spectacular happened. It just felt really busy. It felt, it flew by. My sleep schedule's messed up. Out of whack. Out of whack. Sharice has been waking up at 5.30 a.m. to take calls. <laughs> it's all right. I mean, it, it's fine. It would be fine if I just slept earlier. Yeah, but you go to bed at like 1 a.m. Really, it is my own fault. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Making It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash Let's get into it. Do you think that people are naturally night owls or do you think that's a myth? I think Asian people go to sleep later than other ethnicities. How can that be true? I mean, everyone I know goes to bed really late. That like, that's such a dumb way of putting it. But when I look back on when I was younger, all my friends went to bed at like 10 p.m. Yeah. You mean growing up? Like in university and stuff, like it was really the... Asian kids that sit up the latest. But why? That, that has no scientific bearing behind it. But Absolutely it's just, no scientific, not even actual hard data. This is just anecdotally <sighs> Eugene and I and our friends. Give me one second. Sleep late. Ah, I came across this article on Vox. I don't think I'm totally incorrect. So, but then but, it must be so cultural. For, it can't be genetic. So, I think it's cultural. Because, for example, I'm looking at this thing right now. Obviously, the early risers are the ones that go to bed earlier. Yeah. Right. Yes. But the ones on the median. So I'm looking at this chart right now and the people that go to bed at 1130 PM or later include Japanese, Mexicans, people in Hong Kong. There's one I can't see. It's hiding Brazil, Malaysia. I don't know this flag, um, Italy and Spain. Mm. So, I mm. mean, there is no Asian country that goes to bed earlier than 1130. That's really interesting. Is it just because of work culture? I don't know. I was not prepared to talk about this. One thing that was really interesting, I received a video from my dad like an hour ago and my mom celebrated 50 years in Canada and they went to the exact restaurant she had her first meal in 50 years ago. Oh my goodness. That's so cute. And the son of the owner or, you know, whatever that lineage passed down was there and I was like my mom was like oh yeah like I ate at this restaurant 50 years ago that's pretty wow, crazy wow that's really good that is yeah. material for reddit right there yeah if you had a photo of them from 50 years ago and then this photo that side by side yeah, would that'd be, be crazy yeah it's been interesting to see my mom I mean it sucks that we're so far away and I don't see her that often yeah since like 1990 my mom's pretty much been taking care of my grandparents like they immigrated from Hong Kong to Canada and then my grandma passed away, I think, last year. So she's just 
finally had time to sort of do her own thing because if it wasn't taking care of my brother and I, it was taking care of my grandparents, right? So she's like kind of chilling right now. Yeah. Well-deserved. Well-deserved. Now she can just take care of yeah. herself. Great. And my dad. And your dad. My subject this week is what it's like to start a new job remotely during COVID. And this is somewhat of a personal pick because I have personal experience with the subject. I was supposed to move in April to the States and that didn't happen because of everything, which is also, by the way, how this article starts. And also every article that talks about starting a new job during COVID starts this way. Like so-and-so was supposed to start a job, blah, 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 but then pandemic. So same is true for my life. Um, I'm really grateful that I got a chance to meet my coworkers in February before I knew that I wasn't going to get to then see them in April. In hindsight, I wish I had used that like in-person time differently, but we'll get into that. But you would have never known. You would yeah, have never I couldn't known. have known. I couldn't have known. It's only in hindsight, right? So the article that this is loosely related to, but there's quite a few articles similar to this one that I'm going to talk about is from the New York Times. They have this series called Out of Office, and this particular article is called Meet the New Guy. It's written by Lindsay Underwood, and it follows the story of one man named Jose. He finds himself furloughed sometime in the middle of the pandemic and then unemployed quite suddenly. So just unexpectedly, you know, companies losing business, furloughs a bunch of people. He had actually moved to L.A. for the job, which must be a huge bummer. And so he's looking for a new job again and he's doing interviews on Zoom and doing this entire process of like job hunting from his bedroom, which is one interesting aspect, I think, of just being not the kind of job related rituals that you would expect, like not the ritual of you know picking an interview outfit and then like figuring out how to go to the office and doing the handshake and stuff like that. So I thought that's kind of an interesting point as well, that just like finding a job is this different process at this moment. I do wonder if employers are worried about the onboarding of talent remotely too. So that's kind of the next thing, the bigger part of this conversation that I think is interesting, not so much the job hunt part, which could be a totally other subject. The question really is that this article puts forward in a lot of articles that are similar is like, what does onboarding look like now when it's hard to pinpoint culture, work culture in an abstract and virtual space? There are articles that are about like practical onboarding, you know, like teaching people to use the tools that the company uses and like where files are. And I think that those things are still relatively easy. Like it's not so hard. You can, you know, have someone on a video call, like guiding you through all of those sort of technical aspects. But onboarding for culture is is already actually difficult in real life, like in physical space. And so mm -hmm. onboarding virtually is, I don't think there's a playbook for it, like what it means. Because I mean, I think there is a playbook. Okay. Tell me what the playbook yeah, is. Because I think the playbook is really, but if you understand how to create culture devoid of physical connection, why doesn't that carry over? What do you mean? Because you're basically talking about onboarding people, uh, like the handbook for onboarding people. Yes. In these circumstances. So I, I don't think that it's like, oh, what is it like to onboard people in a pandemic? It's how do you onboard people devoid of physical interaction? Yes. 
But for companies who don't have a lot of remote workers, they don't have an existing playbook. Well, I would say that it's not unprecedented in well, terms yeah. of, I, I think that's the, what I mean. No, exactly. Because yes, obviously we all now work against like the backdrop of the pandemic. And I think that that has a ongoing mental effect on everyone. Okay. Just constantly in the background of our lives now. But you are correct that actually starting a new job during a pandemic is actually the same thing as starting a new job remotely. It's exactly. just that not a lot of people have had that experience before. And not that many companies do that, except for yeah. this year. Suddenly, yeah. everyone is required to do it. I, I hope I'm not interjecting too early in terms of you continuing your thoughts. But for me, this whole pandemic has, if anything, really put power in the hands of people that can create non-physical cultures, work cultures, communities, et cetera. So I think that's actually really important because if you are scared, lazy, whatever it may be, to explore outside the confines of physical interaction, you're going to be severely hampered, right? Both in terms of getting the best out of your talent, et cetera, et cetera. No, I think you're totally correct. And I don't, I don't think you're jumping in too early because this article is not really, there's not a lot of numbers or facts here. Right. And I did want to talk about that creation of culture in a virtual space, because I think there's only so much that a company can do, which I don't know if that's that's probably not very encouraging to founders or bosses. Like, obviously, they can set up systems for making onboarding easier. Like they can set up systems when it comes to practical things and they can also provide guidelines to employees for onboarding each other. But I actually think that the culture really comes down to the individuals that are part of the company. So the actual individual employees. And I suppose what will be shown is like, what type of people did you hire? Did the people you hired that work together well in a physical space, like, are they able to adapt and continue their company culture in a virtual space. Correct me if I'm wrong, but like, that's what I think it comes down to is like those individual relationships, like in the creation of virtual culture. This is the really challenging part, right? There are certain personalities that I think do a bit better digitally. And the ones that are really strong in communication that can instill trust when you're not in eyeshot, right? Which is unfortunate because I've always been of the belief that just because you don't follow the traditional go-getter extroverted model, it doesn't mean that you don't add value to your team. Now, this is a challenge in that how do people that are introverted show that they can add value when they aren't the most outspoken? There aren't the ones that are firing away on Slack and like letting people know they're working or they're present when they're actually heads down working. Because you can see heads down working. Yeah, actually in another article not the one I'm referring to, but another New York Times article about that's more like helpful tips. It talks about how in ordinary circumstances, when you start a job in an office, you're trying to like showcase your professional expertise and social prowess. Like you start a job and you're like trying to make a splash. Right. And actually this executive coach, her name's Zena Everett. She said she typically advises recent hires to take their time getting acclimated to a new position and to resist the pressure to make a splash. Like that's, you know, back in the day in, when you were in a physical office. And she also mm -hmm. says now it's the opposite. You need to get in and start collaborating really quickly. But I find that quite a depressing um, approach. 
Like I think, yeah. I think her original approach is the one I would want people to still go by virtually, like to resist the pressure to make a splash, like to add value in the way that you usually would add value rather than like, like you said, like trying to be in the slack all the time and yeah. And, yeah. and being very visible about your work. I mean, obviously it's not enough to just do good work. Like you said, you have to communicate it as well, but I think the ways of communicating it can be in more private conversations. At least like, that's what I think. Like it doesn't have yeah. to be in this yeah. extremely visible way for the whole company. Something you said, I don't, made me wonder if you'd like read my notes, which I know you don't no, do. No, I didn't. I don't. I, I know you don't do yeah. it. But like my question overall for this subject is how do you show that you're a person your colleagues can trust? And how do you also develop trust for your colleagues? And you, you had mentioned trust as well. So this is something that I can relate back to because in reality, like this is my own experience dating back to 2007, 2008 at Hypebeast, right? We worked with a lot of writers globally, especially we're based in Hong Kong. You didn't always have access to the type of talent you needed. So you looked far and wide. And the number one marker and signal that I always looked at was punctuality, especially since you know that, hey, it's a matter of you just being in front of a computer at 8 p.m. or 8 a.m., whatever, right? That's one way. And number two, how closely aligned were what you said you were going to do and what was the outcome? Yeah. Right. And I think quality can come afterwards, especially during that time, because to be honest, in the early days of like streetwear publishing, the barometer for quality is quite low, like the, the level, <laughs> the bar. Right. So it's just like, did you get your shit Seeing done? Did you, get your shit done? you were like one of the leading people to set the bar. I appreciate you saying that the bar was I'm not. Low. I mean, I've you know that in private or even openly, I don't think I'm a great writer because it's often you, Nate and Scott that help make sure my my stuff doesn't come across as being bad. I wasn't trying to set you up to yeah. be honest there, but yeah. But that's the reality. Okay. Like you look at those things because- So are you punctual and do you do what you said you were going to do? You say you're going to do, yeah. I actually have one that I don't know if this is naive of me or not, but I would want to just assume trust in my colleagues. And maybe it's a little bit different because, you know, in a company where you're working with, you know, salaried people, like full-time people, they're not contractors. You're, you're, you're there for a long time with each other. Maybe you just start by assuming that you trust that person and, and vice versa. Like I would want my colleagues who've already been there a long time to trust me, the new hire, rather than having to having me to earn their trust. Can we start off with a basis where you already trust me? You can, but the thing is, is that in light of this, when you cannot really interact on a personality driven level, you need to have some sort of objective measures, right? And these are things that are hard to avoid. If someone, I mean, actually, let me walk that back because maybe Sharice doesn't value functionality, but Eugene does. So if you're five minutes late, 10 minutes late, you might not even care because you might actually fall in line with that yeah. because you're often, you know, five, 10 minutes late, but it just sets the precedence in the bar because it's, it's what you have to form a relatively educated opinion. And I don't, I don't say that like, Hey, your ability to be punctual and to say what you're going to do is the end all be all. It does allow you to form some sort of narrative. And that narrative just makes it a bit easier to understand how to work with this person. In my opinion, like you have to do a lot of, uh, extrapolation in terms of 
what this, who this person is, right? You don't have the same, like, Hey, let's have like a Friday night, like happy hour, whatever. You don't have those opportunities. Yeah. So you're trying to make all these micro decisions based off what the available information is. Right. And in some ways, I don't know if this is right or wrong. Like this is from the Eugene book of management and it could be wrong too. Right. But for me, I always like to put forth tasks and see who does the task and how much follow-up is needed. Yeah. But it's not perfect because like, for example, like not to throw you under the bus, but I've asked you to do things too, Sharice, and you know, it just, it doesn't get done or it's not important enough to factor into your day-to-day or weekly schedule. Yeah. But I also know that because we've worked together that it's not a definition of your character. Right. So I have two responses. One is I think your perspective is from a manager perspective, which is different Mm -hmm. from just being colleagues with someone like your kind of expectations about punctuality and doing what you say you're going to do. Like those are things that as a manager, I would expect you to communicate with your team, like with the people who are reporting to you, you know, so that they know what your expectations are. And it's not like this sort of hidden trick, you know, like a test that they're trying to pass that they don't know the rules to. But I think with colleagues, it's different. Like if you're just working together on a team, you don't tell someone like, hey, I'm expecting you to be like punctual and do what you're going to say. and like, like watching you, you know, like mm-hmm. in those situations where you're collaborating together, like on the same level, then you still need to have trust for each other. Mm-hmm. And it's a little bit trickier, I think, because you're not in a position where someone is a manager or not. You have to just like get to know each other and be able to work together. That's that's what I was talking about with like assumed yeah. trust. Like, yes, obviously, like I evaluate like who I'm working with based off of, mm. you know, the things that I value. I think it's harder in a virtual space to instantaneously be able to work well together. And I guess what I would say is like the quickest way to do that is just to assume to trust someone. And then the second thing I was going to say, I don't I, do, I definitely do not mind you throwing me under the bus because I can clearly remember many instances where I didn't do what you asked me to do. So these are just facts that Eugene is sharing here with everyone. But we've also known each other a really long time. So it's not as pertinent to this topic of like someone just starting. You know, Mm -hmm. if I perform the way I do now, just having met you, you would not work with me again. Like, I'm pretty certain of that. Based off of what you just said in terms of like punctuality and then like doing what I'm say I'm going to do. But it's because we've been, and I obviously abuse this because we've been working together for like seven years now that our relationship is what it is. Yeah. I mean, in short, everyone's framework to arrive at trust is different, but that is the ultimate goal you're trying to garner. It's like, how do I figure out how trustworthy this person is? Yeah. And this is in the context of work. I mean, in general, right? Well, I think this is what I was thinking about because it's interesting to think about your context of work versus other, because actually in the context of friendships, I have lots of friends I've never met in person or I've met once. And somehow I feel like that's easier. Maybe it's because you don't have those work related goals that you have to achieve together hmm. or or some or maybe it's like a barrier actually in people's minds that you have to work together in a physical space in order to work together well cuz like these articles hmm. i read they kept bringing up like the water cooler and you know 
incidental bumping into people or like being able to tap someone on the shoulder and like ask them a question. And I feel like that's just habit. Like my stance is that that is not a hundred percent necessary for good working relationships mm. or good work culture or good company culture. That's just what we're used to. When you were onboarded into this new job, what did you find really helpful? Something I found really helpful that one of these articles I read also mentioned is one-on-one -on -one conversations with different colleagues. So not just like the people you report to and your boss, but just anyone that you are going to be in communication with, like literally anyone, like any colleague when you're starting remotely, if you get a chance to have like a 15, 30 minute one-on-one -on -one conversation with them, like over Zoom, Google Hangouts, whatever, like I think that goes a long way because you, mm -hmm. you really don't know much about people just through meetings, like group meetings. And actually, even though I agree that you see people's performance just through Slack and deliverables, et cetera, that doesn't help you feel onboarded into a company. Mm. At least my personal experience is like what helped me feel onboarded was being able to have one-on-one -on -one conversations with just different people. And that is something the company can provide, like make sure that that happens. There was one more thing that I think is an interesting point of like remote working and also maybe a benefit from, you know, people starting remotely during the pandemic, which is I think when you go into a physical space in a company, you subconsciously feel this pressure to assimilate. I think that's very human. You know, you want to fit in. You want to be friends with people. Like you want to integrate, right? And to like feel a part of things. But actually, and we've talked about this before, it's not always the most helpful thing for work if everyone is like perfectly integrated and you're all, you know, super buddy buddy i'm not saying like you want to you know work remotely and therefore be enemies with people but i think there is benefits to not being this like perfect culture fit like if your workplace is accepting of that you know that's that's often why workplaces look for new hires anyway right like you want these fresh outside perspectives and maybe by working remotely you preserve more of that outside perspective that you want that that you're looking for in your business that was my big revelation reading this was maybe as much as I want people to feel comfortable as they are starting new jobs remotely. And I think it's important that, you know, you have some kind of routine and feel at ease in your workplace. I also think the silver lining is that you can still maintain more of your independent perspective and not get like overly subsumed by the company's existing culture. Should we move on? Yeah, let's do it. My topic this week is it just got a lot easier to secure a Telfer bag. So this has been making its way around the internet for over the last few days. And for those unfamiliar, Telfer is a brand co-founded by Telfer Clemens and creative director Babic Radboy. And they announced a new way to cop their highly coveted shopping bag, uh, which they dubbed the everyday bag for everyone. 
And Clemens launched his brand in 2014 and won the CFDA slash Vogue Fashion Fund Award in 2017. Thank you, Sharice, for inputting that piece of information. You're welcome. This $150 to $257 bag, which is based on size, that's why the price variation exists, it's known sort of around fashion circles as the Bushwick Birkin, and it's a shout out to its roots. In recent times, it's been a thorny issue in the side of Telfer due to the friction created with its loyal fans unable to get the bags at retail. Just to clarify, Eugene said shout out to its roots, but Telfar is still based in Bushwick. So shout out to its current location as well. Yeah, thanks. And some of these bags are going for upwards of $700 US on sites like Grailed. And in recent times, resellers would would share screenshots of their purchases saying, oh, I just like copped a, a shitload of Telfer bags that I'm going to resell, Yeah, right? And they just give a price. So maybe they bought it for 200 bucks and they're going to resell it for 400. Yeah, because previously the system was, you know, Telfer would release drops of their bags and then it was kind of just like, if you got lucky, like if you could beat the automation essentially or like the, the system, so... And as Telfer founder Telfer Clemens told The Cut, it is actually the craziest paradox when something is so accessible that no one can get it. But I mean, it's there's scarcity involved, which is why they can't get it, right? You can't produce infinite amounts. So to combat this, what Telfer did... He means accessible in cost. I mean, it's also not... I, I, I don't agree with that because it's still $150 to $257 bag, right? I think it's more on the basis in relative terms. Yes, but I think he is still referring to accessibility in cost because you're right, like each drop is limited in number, in quantity. To find a solution to all of this, they launched a program a few days ago. Well, it's a one-time thing as of right now. But on Wednesday, August 19th, they dropped something called the Telfer Bag Security Program. So this one-day, 24-hour online event allowed people to pre-order any and every color of the Telfer bag uh, and sizing, just whatever you wanted to your heart's content, you could order. Yeah. And it would be delivered later this year. Uh, I think January. Yeah, December, January. One thing that the article in the cut summarized in at the end was Telfer believes that while it's essentially positioned higher up on the fashion food chain, like it's not fast fashion, obviously, but it's not the highest of you know, luxury fashion houses. It's not an actual Birkin. But the name, the Bushwick Birkin, you know, in itself symbolizes a non-traditional sense of status that isn't monetarily driven, which has traditionally been the way luxury has operated, right? That's the first and foremost showcase of its value, in my opinion, is it has an LV logo on it. It's expensive. But in this case, the Bushwick Birkin, while is not affordable for everybody it comes down the sort of hierarchy right mm -hmm. and it symbolizes community and belonging mm -hmm. so i think that knowing all of this the reason why i picked this was i find something really fascinating about building brands that have mainstream movement i mean telfer Yes, mainstream, not mainstream, like that's not really the debate. It's more so something that has the ability to service all of its fans with a near commodity product and not denigrate its branding. Yeah. Did I use denigrate correctly there? You did. Cut that part out, please. <laughs> I don't know who that is. I save those bits, you know. So like I said, I actually also find this really interesting because it parallels some of the things I think about with Macon, where 
in reality, I think media companies, especially with their merchandise, fall a bit more in line with with the Bushwick Birkin type approach, where it's not difficult to buy, but I think that there's an underlying message that goes beyond financial currency, right? It's about movement, it's about messaging. So if you have yeah. a Bushwick Birkin, you're part of what you believe in, in terms of the Telfer philosophy towards fashion and inclusivity. Yeah. It's about what are you aligning yourself with? Yeah. Like it shows this sense of solidarity. And I think the wholesome nature of it actually changes the whole dynamic. Because can you really hate on someone holding a, a Telfer bag if this is what Telfer as a brand believes in? No. Exactly. Right. It's like a lot different. Like you, when I buy a, a Hermes bag or something, I don't know if I'm getting any I mean, it's not in their interest to create a relatively commoditized handbag. No. And also, I think the Hermes customer is not looking for something that is relatively accessible. And it's like the opposite, right? Like you mentioned this at the top. But I think it's worth mentioning again. The brand Telfar, their slogan is not for you, for everyone. And that's like not what luxury is interested in, right? Like they sell themselves as being for you specifically not for everyone yeah and basically managing scarcity yes yes. The, the things that i i've been thinking about a lot in terms of this are what happens if telford just becomes this singular item brand right where no one really goes to tell for any for anything but the bag is that an issue i don't think it's really an issue i mean a lot of fashion houses make a lot of things that nobody ever looks at like they still show you know spring summer resort etc and never gets really any kind of mainstream attention and still exists. Mm-hmm. I mean, like I said, part of the reason I put in that bio note was to mention that, you know, Clemens didn't just like come on the scene making the bag. Like he started off doing, you know, traditional runway shows and breaking into fashion weeks. And then he made I guess what turned out to be a really smart decision and invested his CFDA prize money into producing the Telfer bags. Like maybe that's also in line with his philosophy of not being just something for a specific niche group of people, but something for everyone. And a bag Mm -hmm. is a lot easier to buy and use and wear than, you know, something on his runway show that's you know what I mean? Like a look that's not for everyone and that can't be necessarily worn every day. Probably most likely that Telfer is, will be known for these bags like in, in the foreseeable future. But I would hope that it still allows Clemens to do other things as a fashion designer. And actually, he was yeah. supposed to do a collaboration with Gap this summer that didn't that got put on delay. Potentially because Kanye emerged, but that's all speculation. Yeah, speculation. We, we don't yeah. know. But that, I, that just saying there are other opportunities for Clemens, <laughs> I think, as a designer that are not related to the bag. But what most people are going to know about Telfer is that bag. The one thing that you mentioned I think is really important is that in the life cycle of creativity, there's ebbs and flows, but there's also finding a place of sustainability and that's not just from a fashion financial standpoint it's creative and almost like sustaining your mood and your appetite for creating and when you have a cash cow like like the bag it allows you much less pressure no it allows you to not be as pressured to make money in other parts of the business yeah so for example i think 
Comdé Garçon is the best example. Like you have Comdé Garçon play with the logo, the Converse shoes. There's like the 17. Fragrances. What, how many? I'm going to look this up. There's I knew ton. this before. We've talked about this in the, in, yeah. in, in the past. But the reality is that I'm sure that if you look at what the cost and revenue breakdown, oh, not the cost. I'm sure if you look at the revenue breakdown, there's probably an outsized revenue generation component from, you know, Comdé Garçon play relative to the other more one runway driven brands. Yeah. But it, right. Yes. But it allows Ray Kawakubo to like do everything else or that and, she wants and to her do. her team. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's actually really important because, you know, the Telfer bag can continue to exist and spit out things month after month or whatever season after season. But then it keeps the team satisfied creatively because they can go into these other places. Yeah. Oh my goodness. I just looked up Come to Garçon on Wikipedia and there are more lines than I can actually like count quickly. But you know, that Kawakuru, I guess that was her and her team's like decision to like just do as many spin-offs as they need. But I think the one thing that we didn't really touch upon because it I think the the one thing I I didn't really touch upon over the course of this was that this is the story of a black founded brand that has created a massive following and getting paid for it. We actually and didn't thing, even mention Telfer's background and maybe that's correct. relevant right now. I wonder, okay, this is something that we can talk about openly because I don't know. It's just that the value of a financially successful black brand actually might have outsized impact in the broader picture. And the reason why I say this, I've been working on a story where I spoke with the team at Protect Black Businesses, which is a movement. I guess it's there's no sort of very clean way to describe it, but it's a collective of people interested in helping and protecting and creating a network for black businesses, especially amidst all the uh, looting and stuff that was going on in recent times. And the one thing they mentioned is that the value of seeing successful black businesses is that first, it allows the black community to keep money in their community, mm -hmm. right? Versus like you make money and suddenly your money leaves the community because you're buying a handbag from, for the black community, a lack of ownership and the ability to build businesses in many ways has been detrimental. But when you see a successful black business such as Telfer, it gives confidence to the next generation that, hey, you can go and create your own black business and there will be support for it. And that could be a fashion brand. And in our story, we talk about like a rice brand, right? It, instead of General Mills, can you support like, a black brand. Yeah. Right. An independent black brand, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's actually really interesting because that's something you don't really think about. Like when you purchase things, you don't really think about the ownership, but then on the flip side, if you look at the impact of ownership, it's actually extremely important and has a, has the ability to move the needle. I would say that there has been increasing conversation in the last couple of years about thinking more about ownership this year in particular about race when it comes to ownership of businesses. But even before that, I would say there was a lot of conversation about supporting small businesses versus corporate, you know, buying directly from the pe people, you know, owners, you know, rather than from aggregate companies or just, you know, chain companies, et cetera, like when possible. And so this is like kind of taking that one step further in terms of consciousness of who you're supporting and therefore like what they would be supporting in return. And I think that's really important. 
And like you said, I think just the fact that even if you don't buy a Telfer bag, like you and I, neither of us own one, unless you you participated in the drop and I don't know that. No. The fact that we are talking about it and that it has mainstream success, like you said, has a really big impact. This is the one thing that I've really sort of gotten behind in recent times is supporting companies and brands in which there's a direct connection to the owner. Yeah. And the reason why is that in many ways, no one will care more about the brand, the product and their customers than when you have sort of an owner operator type model yeah, or setup, right? And I, I would like us to push back against massive conglomerates, not because they don't make good product, but because I think the landscape is a lot better when you have a variety of voices. And in many ways, these are sort of, how do I call this? These are somewhat low risk things where there's not a massive barrier to entry, meaning by virtue of me not getting this brand and going to that brand, I don't lose a lot in terms of like performance or quality. Yeah. I would say, in fact, you probably gain something like we talked about. You gain in signaling and you gain in, you know, yeah, yeah, it could be a lot of identity. Yeah. And like you said, I bet that quality is sort of, you know, analogous or like not a big enough difference to make you change your mind. Like, on which, like, if you're buying a T-shirt, yeah, you know, yeah, like you don't really, you're not really going to see a difference between the corporate-made one and then supporting like a smaller brand. Yeah, like you could buy a Balenciaga T-shirt or you could buy like a Macon T-shirt, and there's a chance that they could be the same quality. I said the Macon T-shirt is a lot less because the markup's lower, right? Like that's a way of looking at it. Yeah. Um. But one, but one thing I do want to you know, like kind of throw out there is that Telfer is a brand. Interestingly enough, what does it mean when it's accessible at this level and there are essentially no barriers to entry into the brand? Because I guess in the past, the barriers to entry were just, could you get there fast enough? Or did you have money or did you have enough money to buy it on, re- on resale? What right? do you mean? Are you, are you saying that you think it dilutes the brand? Yes. I think what is the dilution? Not because of its accessibility, but because people that don't really understand or believe in the Telfer mission or philosophy are just buying it because they know it's popular. I mean, this is I mean, kind of yeah. the case across the board. This is something I was thinking about, you know, as, as we start to like roll out product and think about it. This actually made me think a lot about the process behind releasing product. And, you know, there's always this talk about like, oh, do you have skin in the game? Right. Or have you have you done something to justify your ability to like have a seat at the table, right? Have you done any work? So you can't get mad at who's buying the bag, even if they are just buying it because they see other people buying it. They see it as a popular trendy item. Like if you're going to open the gates like that and be about something for everyone, then it really is got to be for everyone. You, You can't just say, like, you know, we talked about the New Yorker bag like way back. It would be hypocritical i feel like to then point at everyone holding a new yorker bag and be like i know you don't read the new yorker you know what i mean and it's the same thing for like telfer or macon like it would be i I mean i guess people can do this i just don't think they should do this you wouldn't go up to someone who has like a macon tea and be like did you read macon three years ago because i did you know like are you a day like that's 
Come on. No, I mean, I have a few ideas in terms of how we release our product that maybe, maybe when they become more crystallized, I would love to see how it plays out. And I think there's one thing I've realized with making as of late, like we try a lot of things and it's just like, for me, most recently, it's thinking about what we want to try and test and giving it enough of a push so that we can see if it works or not and just be totally okay if things fail like i almost feel now i'm just so numb to failure that i i get more excited about just the opportunity to try things than i do about the outcome and i don't know if that's right or wrong no i think that's a great place to be in i got interviewed for a book yesterday and as i was going through it like there was a very clear delineation okay making doesn't need to make money it will want to make money but it will also stumble its way and experiment along the way to get there yeah. Right. But ultimately, we, we I think you and I agree, like the way that we run it right now, Maitland hopes to be a public good before it becomes a profit seeking business. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Well, and I mean, that's it, it, that's a tremendous amount of privilege. Like, obviously, we had to oh, make a lot of sacrifice to totally. get there. Don't don't. I think that let's not discount the sacrifice. I right? mean, you guys have made a lot of personal sacrifices. Yeah. But I feel so creatively satisfied because I have this and I. I think that that part in itself is actually so critical because without that if you just are so one track that's i think where burnout can potentially emerge because you're just stuck doing this one thing that you don't you might enjoy it in ebbs and flows but i would say that in general making has never not been enjoyable Mm -hmm. well kind of to address your question about being numb to failure i think that is an incredible thing as a personality like as a trait of a person to be non-impacted just not you know seriously bummed out by failure and it is like you said also a privilege to not have to be afraid of failure in certain circumstances like knowing that there are not going to be repercussions so big that your life would be you know like that you would not be able to put food on the table for example yeah but as a personality trait i feel like that's kind of what we should all aspire to to not be as devastated by failure you know we talked about emotional resilience in the making discord and i feel like that's part of that that's all i have today i think that's a good place to cap things off cool if you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash Macon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at Sharice at Macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or Eugene at Eugene at Macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.